0: Welcome to you here at first, an unofficial unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Wagner. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere heard their music, movie, political, and pop culture news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front-row seat whether covering the latest music video, blockbuster, or a presidential campaign, MTV News was a laboratory for experimentation and a place where rules were made to be judiciously broken. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told the stories. This is season one of You Hear It First. For well over a decade, Josh Horowitz has been foisting the MTV mic flag into movie stars' faces, asking questions sacred and profane, encyclopedic, substantive, and sometimes just plain odd, including pressing the Top Gun sequel question on Tom Cruise for years until he finally relented and made the damn thing. Last summer, Josh added that Top Gun Maverick red carpet coverage to a long, long list of luminous accomplishments. Josh launched MTV's first online movies coverage in the early aughts, then quickly pivoted to on-camera work on everything from MTV Movie Awards to the Oscars, Golden Globes, Comic-Con, and Sundance. He's consistently invented and iterated on a very specific and absolutely unique brand of smart, awkward, and wacky celebrity-oriented humor with shows like After Hours and his happy, sad, confused podcast, which at well over 400 episodes has featured in-depth interviews with Sam Jackson, Aaron Sorkin, Denzel Washington, Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale, and more. On this week's star-studded episode, Josh regales us with heartbreaking and hilarious tales from his modest beginnings on the mean streets of the Upper West Side of Manhattan to hanging out with Meryl Streep, dishing with Leonardo DiCaprio, vacationing with Jason Bateman, rubbing knees with John Travolta, yelling at Chris Pratt, and much, much more. So hang on to your popcorn. Here comes a blockbuster interview with my dear, truly thoughtful, and deeply intelligent friend, Josh Horwitz. You have done things like go to a junket, you know, like an overwater bungalow in like Bora Bora or something. You have been to Dubai with Tom Cruise. What has been to date the biggest, how did I get here
1: moment? You hit on a couple of them, so don't don't diminish those. Yeah, it, it's hard to, it, it's yeah. hard to top being at the Burj Khalifa yeah. with Tom Cruise. It's arguably the best part of what I get to do. Is you get those great party stories, but they yeah. are these pinch me moments. And I think we've we've talked about this in the past. I have been always very cognizant, and more so as the years go by, yeah. of just. Getting that second sight, right, of looking at myself from above and being like, how the F did you get here? Look look how privileged you are. Do you know how many people would kill for this moment? Embrace the absurdity. Embrace it. Those are a few. Yes, I think those far-flung locales, and you've been a part of many of them, being live on red carpets at the Oscars and for the MTV Movie Awards and being- The guy kind of who's like, who's had, had the reins and like, it's just something I never conceived. I would have that kind of responsibility. And I, I say this to other people um, and you'll appreciate this. Like one of the things I always took pride in when I got a chance to host the red carpet. For the MTV movie awards was those years when, and Sway would do this, our, our mutual friend would do this often too, but I had a few opportunities where you would at the at the close of a carpet, you would have to toss to the main show. And I know this yeah. sounds a little inside baseball, maybe to some yeah. people listening, but it's a small thing, but it's a real thing where you know I'm with talent, it's not scripted, and I have to toss within a second to yeah. the main show. That show is starting whether I stop talking or not. Yeah. And I'm getting you or Dave Sarolnik or somebody in my ear giving me the five. Four, three, two. It's not important in the grand scheme of things, but it is important. It's like you're controlling MTV. You are yeah. you are controlling it and, and tossing to arguably one of their two big tent poles of the year. And I've never done any real uh, drug in my life, but that's a drug. That's a yeah. high that yeah. I will yeah. remember till my dying day. So those stick out. And yes, like just celebrities and far-flung locales, bora bora for couples retreat, a forgettable film, but like basically being there with like, basically being on vacation with Jason Bateman. (laughs) Like what? How did I get here? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I made a good choice or someone made a bad choice and I'm reaping the
0: rewards. My memory is that you were the first one to put Top Gun to Tom, not joking. Like I remember you coming back and being like, oh yeah. Do I remember that right?
1: You're right that I've definitely been asking Tom Cruise, and it was maybe at that Dubai junket or earlier, one of those Mission Impossible junkets. Yeah. I remember asking him about Top Gun 2 and him just giving the non-committal, we're working on it of thing. Course. It's funny. I've had a few of those over the years where I feel like I've had some small degree of secreting into the universe, these sequels yeah. that, I mean, yeah. nowadays, everything has gotten the reboot, the the sequel, the legacy sequel, and- I'm a fanboy like everybody else. Like I remember, like Bill and Ted Three, for instance. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. been talking to Alex Winter and Keanu totally. Reeves yeah. about Bill and Ted Three for no joke, like twelve yeah, you, years.
0: You have a producer credit though, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was half expecting yeah. it.
1: Yeah, you know, here's a small, weird one. It's not less of a sequel thing, but. 21 Jump Street, I remember talking to way back when – I don't know if you remember this. I remember talking to Channing and Jonah as it was being developed, and it, at the time it sounded like an insane concept. And there were yeah, all these rumors about did, yeah. Johnny Johnny Depp being involved. And Johnny Depp, who, who you know to some is obviously a problematic figure now, but back in the day it was like, oh my God, could they get Johnny Depp in this film? And I remember talking to Jonah numerous times and being like, yeah, we're trying to get a message to Johnny that he wants to be in the film. And it ended up being that I was right. the one – that talked to Johnny Depp and told him that they were trying to reach him. And he was like, really? And Jonah, to his credit, gave me credit. Uh, At a I South by Southwest yeah. premiere, this guy, Josh Horowitz, actually got Johnny Depp's attention that we were trying to get him in the film. And sure That's enough, he ended cool. up in the film. So yeah. it's those, those weird intersections where I suddenly become a small part of the actual product, yeah. that have been pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Man, yeah, I love that.
0: So take me back to the Upper West Side so 1988, what is the like scene? Who is Josh Horowitz? What does he look like? What is he up to?
1: I was a caricature of like a creation of, out of a Woody Allen film. I was media and pop culture obsessed, like everybody that ends up at MTV like you and I did. I was a freak of nature. I would get the New York Post, the New York Daily News, and the New York right. Times, and I would literally oh like gosh. walk into a classroom when I was like 12 or 14 years old and have my stack of newspapers that I don't know if it was like a defense mechanism, like this way, no one will possibly ever yeah. talk to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it was, it was partially that but partially, like I was just like a sponge. Give me more, more TV, more film, more media. And I soaked it all up. And I didn't know what I wanted to do necessarily, but I knew this is what I was obsessed with. Yeah, was like yeah. that, that media world, that movie world, that TV world. And that was part of my DNA growing up in the city.
0: What would be the rosebud totem or item?
1: I think of a couple incidents growing up when... I got that kind of similar high that I was talking about on that carpet that made me chase the dragon for the rest of my life. I lucked into my media career as as a kid through my older siblings. There was this organization called Children's Express that sadly no longer exists. But it was a a worldwide organization started in New York City by a great guy named Bob Clampett who became a, a family friend that enlisted kids to tackle really weighty stories of the times and and do interviews. And my older brother and sister were very involved in this. Uh. And I was less so, but it did get me at 12 years old, actually, speak of 1988. 1988, Uh I went to Atlanta to, to the Democratic National Convention.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: Yeah. And I vividly remember being on the convention floor in Atlanta chasing Senator Paul Simon at the time yeah. and Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was who was one of the contenders that year. Both of them had been presidential contenders that year. That was exciting. I was where the adults were. I was where the action was. And I, I was part of something that felt bigger than my little 12-year-old life. Yeah. And that's one that sticks out as a big moment where I was like, I'm touching a bigger world, a more mm. weighty world. For a while, I, w- I was more interested in media and politics. I remember kind of a fork in the road early on. I think I was choosing between internship opportunities at the Columbia Journalism Review. It was probably either WNYC or Charlie Rose, and I ended up doing internships at both those places, and I didn't do CJR, which would have been a different
0: path. A Pulitzer instead of an Oscar.
1: I, well, I have neither, but I would have been <laughs> close It's to, not too late, pro- Josh. In proximity. I've been around Oscars. I've never picked up the Oscar. I feel like it's not that uh, I ever think I'm going to win one because how, how is that going to happen? But there is something. I don't know if I want to touch the idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think I just want, want to be around it.
0: What was a first early movie experience where the eyes lit up and you were like, oh, this is something else? Of all things, Terry Gilliam
1: film called Time Bandits. Time Bandits, sure. Remember Time Bandits? Yeah, 100%. Which is a pr- pretty weird, yeah. crazy movie to, to see as a kid. And I looked back at the dates, I probably, it was like, I would have been like five <laughs> when I saw it, which is, I don't know if it's really appropriate. This is a movie where the parents get killed at yeah, the end and, 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 and the devil basically takes over the planet.
0: Right. Like everybody becomes like little charcoal brickets in toaster exactly, ovens or something. Exactly.
1: Right? It's like, like, yeah. Scared the super, hell out of me. Super dark, super weird. My grandmother took me and my brother to Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, you know, like yeah. again, out of central casting. Do, yeah. Did I like Star Wars? Do I like Star Wars? Yeah. And that 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 made an impression. My brother is four and a half years older than me, and he was the biggest influence pop culture was in my life. And he took me to double and triple features often, especially in the summer. We prided ourselves in sneaking into movies we weren't supposed to be in. We went to Star Trek and sci-fi conventions in New York City and got autographs of like Isaac Asimov and Gene Roddenberry. This may sound cool now when the nerds rule, but back then that was not the cool thing.
0: I was working with you as Comic-Con was sort of ascending and this was 20 years before that. I was legit. I was there first. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah. Was dad like, you guys, come on, you got to see, you know, the parallax view or whatever?
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say, honestly, both my parents have been, cool. it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, because my, my mom actually pursued more of a career in the arts. When we were kids, created a nonprofit arts and theater organization that oh. that stands to this day, that she runs to this day, called Community Works, oh, um, wow. that puts on exhibits. Back in the day, its first function was really to send kids who couldn't really afford theater to get them to into performances yeah, when they were growing awesome. up. My dad was more like me in some ways. Like he was, he grew up in Brooklyn and Played hooky and went to the movies and was obsessed with the Yankees and back in his day was obsessed with World War II films and Abbott and Costello. And yes, definitely transferred that kind of thing to me. And most of that stuff stuck with me. But he he didn't have like the nerd gene as it were, but he loved movies. And frankly, to the end, it was like, you know, sadly, as he was kind of slipping away and kind of losing it a little bit in the last few days and weeks, like the last conversations we were having were about movies. And the last way I could relate to him was about movies
0: film, it's so powerful, right? It's just such a unique medium insofar as you go into a dark room with others to experience it. And it's like a waking dream and it feels like it burns into a part of your brain that's closer to that than say the sports scores or the daily news. I definitely
1: think that my ADD has become worse, I feel like, as I've gotten older and we've become more saturated with, you know, all the cliches, all the devices, etc. It's one of the last places now, right, where we can Mm -hmm. shut off the rest of our brain, hopefully. It's bigger than you, physically, like, it's overwhelming. It's the experience that overwhelms you, and it's why it will never go away. I mean, I've been as concerned as anybody about the future of cinema It's becoming more like theater, but theater thrives, theater exists, and it will still, we we can't replace what film gives us and and how film can transport us no matter how great our our home theater is.
0: Let's talk about a couple specifics here, okay? Okay. I'm not sure I picked right, but I'm sure I chose wisely. See what I did there? (laughs) That was a little Indiana Jones for you well done well done well done i respect you sorry, more than ever that was terrible i mean of all the characters in film to imitate Prince hilarious i could just see him be like choose wisely and you're like, bro this shit jumped the shark like a few ago like when the guy was holding the heart okay like at that point anyway Ram. i've got that
1: t-shirt am, am i wearing it now i have a Moa no i'm wearing a star wars t-shirt
0: always on brand did you have raiders or did you have
1: temple I've a Mola Ram so he was the bad guy in, T- in Temple oh of Doom. Oh my
0: god, you did just see me and raise me like 8 <laughs> points. Mm, uh, your went, hit points just nah. dis- destroy my dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make
1: me speak in my my na- my
0: native tongue. So, um back to the future.
1: Yes, that's one of the texts. That's one of the sacred texts. 1985. Oh gosh, I came back from camp, sleepaway camp. My brother and I. The triple feature with Back to the Future, Teen Wolf, two Michael J. Fox films, mm-hmm. and Real Genius, oh, a of course. underrated classic with Val Kilmer. I remember actually going again to sci-fi conventions prior to Back to the Future coming out. I really remember the teaser trailer for it, where I think a woman like comes up to like the DeLorean. And like asks where he's going, and it's like, how far are you going? About 30 years, and that's the line. Perfect movie. It blew my mind, and Robert Zemeckis was one of the formative filmmakers I was first obsessed with.
0: Tim Burton's Batman.
1: Skipped school June 23rd, 1989. Didn't tell my parents, went by myself, again, nerd that I was, and... Oh my gosh. We were talking before at the the outset about pinch me moments and kind of like those moments that stand out. It's the people that I grew up with that I now kind of like have a casual relationship with. When I started to interview Tim Burton and he knew who I was and then like knew who I was the next time and like we had kind of a shared history, that's like – I know you love Cameron Crowe. One of the big moments like for me was like when Cameron Crowe started following me on Twitter. Like, what? (laughs) It just doesn't compute. So I was obsessed with Batman. I then got the subway posters for Batman Returns, the bat, the cat and the penguin, wallpapering my room, the aesthetic. Talk about just like transporting you. Danny Elfman's music, the production design in the first one. Chris Nolan's great, but like Tim Burton's Batman. It changed the game. Tim Burton's a madman. Like it's a crazy movie. It's, it's so weird. What's Jack Nicholson doing in that movie? What's the Prince soundtrack all about? It's just, it's, it's swinging for the fences and, and like, and that's the problem, (laughs) not to sound like an old man, you know, shouting from my porch, but 90% of the blockbusters feel a little homogenized. They're not big swings. They're not risks that are taken. Batman was a big swing. And I have always said, I appreciate The ones that just swing for the fences, even if you fail. I like the ones that fail too, kind of in their own way. I respect them, but it's the doubles that I don't really give a crap about. Yeah. I don't need that. So Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters was filmed like four blocks away from me on the Upper West Side, Dana Barrett's apartment building. It's kind of like memories that I'm not sure are real or not, but I feel like I remember right. the pandemonium of them outside in those streets. And Ghostbusters was just like, I don't know. There's something different about film phenomenon back then. Like, I think yeah. there was less culture. There was less to compete with. There was a different way that, that a film could cut through and yeah. really permeate every aspect of right. culture that we don't see anymore. And it was the funniest movie I'd ever seen. One of the probably the first movies I'd ever like just could quote backwards and
0: forwards. Not only was the comedy top notch, but the horror was enough that for a kid like me, you know, the library scene at the beginning, you're like, oh, sheesh, that's like, (laughs) that's no joke. That was plenty for me. It's just like a horror film. We
1: take out the comedy. It's a totally serviceable, good, like scary movie. It's kind of a perfect unicorn. How it worked, because clearly Bill Murray was off the rails doing his thing to a degree, but Ivan Reitman, RIP, just reined it in just enough. And it's- yeah, it's, it's a perfect movie and so rewatchable
0: high school and college. As you start to sort of move your way into the world, what's the MacGuffin? What is the object you pursue?
1: Even from the start, it was like, I want to be close to this thing, yeah. media culture. And I didn't know what that meant. And it's funny. I had different goals at different times. I was in college. I, I, got really involved in the newspaper and I became the editor-in-chief of our newspaper. It was a small college. It wasn't that big a deal, but I did get into that. And then we had a tiny radio station and I started a talk radio show and I became really obsessed with that. I thought for a while, radio is where it's at. I'm going to become a a broadcaster. And ironically, podcasting came back around and I kind of got to relive that dream. Yeah, Yeah. It's kind of amazing that way. I think I was too scared to like say out loud what I really wanted, which was in some ways, what I ended up doing, which is holding a microphone and talking to really talented actors and celebrities and filmmakers for MTV and Comedy Central and other f- places. Growing up, people like me weren't necessarily the guys holding the microphones. Right. It's timing and talent, right? We had this conversation many times, like you and I, like authenticity. Yeah. That was more important than polish as a broadcaster. And I could polish up decently, and I still can decently. You more look great important- in a gingham shirt <laughs> Thank you. Uh, (laughs) But my secret weapon was being myself and true to myself and wearing my passions on my sleeve. And I found a path to something I I didn't even dare to say out loud. And it was, frankly, folks like you and our friend Michael Alex, et cetera, at MTV and Dave Sirlnick who took a shot on me and partially me eventually summoning up enough self-confidence to give it a go. So just say, you know what, what's the worst that could happen? I was... In my early thirties before I really started my broadcast on air career, which is not, yeah. not typical. It's kind of crazy.
0: The MacGuffin was the MTV news, Mike flag, right? <laughs> I guess it was. was. I mean, a, kind yeah. of
1: again, like if you talk to me when I was 14, like me being a correspondent for MTV, that was way too yeah. cool for me. It's absurd yeah. that I have been holding that microphone now for 15
0: years. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just beyond, beyond parody, but life had a lot of fun jokes in store for me. Well, I would say the same thing for me, right. As a kid growing up reading Rolling Stone and watching MTV, I couldn't have conceived of either. I just didn't even know where they made them or how, but I think the same thing benefited both of us, which was, and my experience with you is always like, well, why wouldn't you give the most knowledgeable person in the room on the topic, the responsibility to have the deep conversation on the topic or the shallow one, if that's what we want to do. Right. But like, I can do both. I Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> some would argue I specialize in the latter. You know me. I want to do both a little bit of serious and, and and the levity is great. It's so nice to laugh. My sense with you is what got you in the door was the fact that when the cameras were off, you could actually go super deep on virtually any of those movies.
1: I often say my specialty, if there is one, is that weird intersection of smart and stupid. And I can toggle it either way. As the situation warrants and you're a thousand percent right when the mic turns off i don't turn into a different person but i'm enthused and knowledgeable and talk the talk with these folks and i think they have come to respect that and it's
0: it's behooved me well over the years it's the story and it's how you felt and what was yeah. exciting right like and who doesn't want to get stoked about chatting with that guy you know my brother played a huge role he literally was like, hey, uh, the company's moving to New York. You want to come? And I was like, oh, sure. You know what I mean? I mean, it was yeah. I was that like, uh. And the split's close. Chris is three years older than me. Adam's four plus years older than you. I found myself benefiting from his ability to take me into a world that I just wasn't old enough to get into yet. I don't know anything about his story. I just know his IMDb credits and I've heard you guys rap. And I think maybe I met him for a second years ago. But I'm wondering the degree to which he helped to open your eyes to like oh
1: this yeah. is how it's done he definitely did so he went to university of wisconsin madison same story in some respects obsessed with all the things i was obsessed with but he really knew what he wanted he wanted huh. to write and make movies yeah had that very like narrow Passion, which you kind of need to make any go of it in that respect. Found a writing partner there that they still collaborate on. Twenty five years later, it's kind of crazy. That's awesome. I know, isn't that amazing? So he moved out to L. A. immediately and starting to get PA jobs and stuff. And yeah, I absolutely remember going out and spending summers with him or weeks with him and staying at his place when he was interning at like Roger Corman's production company. Yeah, yeah. and um, are you kidding? he did all sorts of crazy jobs for years before he got his first writing gig. And I remember he would get scripts. I remember like yeah. reading the American President's script before the yeah. movie came out. He just had piles of them. And that was like a different window into the industry. And hearing his stories about being a PA on extremely independent small movies. His partner was one of the many assistants to Scott Rudin way back when. So oh, hearing goodness. all yeah. those stories and like going to LA and seeing sort of how the sausage was made through my brother definitely gave me a peek behind the scenes and, and yeah, only, only got me more intrigued by all of it. The thing I've left out about bringing all those like newspapers to school when I was a kid, I was also buying variety. Ah, I yeah. remember combing through like the films that were in production. It, w- it was in there from the start.
0: Hey, it's Benjamin. In our post-pandemic world of hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there is a lot to manage, and most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational strategy, communications, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization need help creating, innovating, communicating, or collaborating effectively, facing uncertainty with confidence or leading meaningful transformation, visit benjaminwagner.com or email me at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. I'd love to hear your origin story at our mutual place of employ at MTV news. I was there, but that doesn't mean I remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am so insulted that you, you have not committed. This I remember to you showing up and yeah. I remember working with you. And I remember being excited because if Chris Conley has a show, why can't we just cover a little bit of movies on the internet? Right. And yep. so my memory is that you were the first dude who was actually a part of the team to lead that charge. So right out of college, I ended up working
1: for Charlie Rose, the uh, problematic uh, Charlie Rose, but talented talk show host. I worked for him for four years. After that, bounced around for a couple different talk shows as like segment producers for Maria Bartiromo. Talk about a person that oh, really no turned out to yeah. be, I know, <laughs> I had no idea. So I ended up um, working on some shows at CNBC, the ill-fated John McEnroe talk show. I loved John. He was just not a great talk show host, but like yes. certainly a smart, interesting guy. <laughs> and somehow put together a book called The Mind of the Modern Movie Maker, horrible right. name that sold you six copies. did
0: I remember reading it now. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep.
1: Yep. This was a collection of interviews with young filmmakers. Yeah. Started a blog uh, to date myself. You were the biggest fan of Better Than Fudge. <laughs> oh, my God.
0: Better than Fudge, right? I'd forgotten. <laughs> I had too. Oh, you know what?
1: When I was thinking about talking to you, I was actually thinking about my origin story at MTV and meeting you and Michael Alex, who were the first two people I met at MTV. And I remember that, oh wait, Better Than Fudge was actually a big part of what you talked to me about. Yeah, I think you yeah. in particular really sure. latched onto as like, of course. I guess my voice was in there. Like my, my sense of humor and my passion right. was in there and it was- It's so funny to think of. It doesn't exist anymore, of course, but it was kind of what I was doing in between gigs at that time. Oh, I'll bet we can find that on the uh, way back. (laughs) The dark web. Uh
0: (laughs) I remember Josh specifically feeling like anybody who took the initiative to publish their own things under their own steam that was, and continues to be the differentiator. I was just like, well, this guy loves it enough that he does it just because? I mean, that's just all you need to know. I a thousand percent
1: agree. Anyone that has that insanity, passion, that's just like make stuff when you don't need to make stuff when no one's telling you. And if you look at the through line of my career, like that is actually really a recurring theme. Creating my own radio show at a school that had like no talk radio presence that became a thing, creating a blog when I didn't need to. Writing a book when like I had no expertise and somehow selling it to a publisher, even though it sold no copies, it's a real book. I have it. I can prove it. My podcast, all these things that I kind of created after hours, which is the early comedy stuff I did at MTV. Like, let's do some funny stuff, too. Let's just see if a celebrity will do crazy shit with me. Invariably, the stuff I take the most pride in that I love the most is the stuff I did in the margins. When people ask me general advice, that's it. What do you have to do? What What are you passionate about? What would you do if there was no money involved? And yeah. just build on that because that's what's going to keep you
0: happy and sane when the gigs come and go. I always admired that about you. I mean, that's a real connection point. Just that compulsion to make. To answer your initial question,
1: how I got to our mutual employer MTV way back when in late 2006 was a media bistro uh, ad. I knew nobody at MTV. I did not necessarily have the job requirements to be the coordinating editor of MTV Movies Digital, which is what my initial job was. I love it. And I met with you and Michael Alex and... Connected with you guys, I think, and yeah. you obviously saw something there and took a shot on me when I really didn't have the resume for that job. I had interesting experiences, but I, di- I really didn't have it. And everything
0: has flowed from that. It's a really lucky, crazy, <laughs> fun story. I'd love to hear a little bit more about those early days, mostly because I don't remember them. Like for me, it was... Getting stoned in Loader's office before going to see Beavis and Butthead downstairs in the Paramount screening room. (laughs) That's a a pretty good one. Okay, Point Point Wagner.
1: Um, (laughs) Part of my job that I didn't realize when I signed on was essentially being Loader's editor. And I was like, what? Like, talk about, like, blowing my mind. Because I grew up like you did, just like he was the guy. So that was a real eye-opener. And it was a, a real privilege to work with him and produce him a bit. Those movie reviews that he wrote were gold because he was still
0: Kurt Loder. (laughs)
1: Yeah, but that was a thrill. Um, His
0: grocery list would be compelling.
1: He just had such gravitas that I never felt like I belonged in the room with him. And I will always remember the first time I happened to do something on camera was, I don't know who made the call, but basically it was actually Loder was supposed to interview John Travolta. John Travolta was coming in for the classic movie Wild Hogs. Of course. uh, (laughs) And I think he was he was he was under the weather or something. I'm still laughing. It was
0: Tim yeah. Allen vehicle, yeah. Wild Hogs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. The greatest yeah. contribution Wild Hogs ever gave was was my on air career. <laughs> and I remember he was in studio, and I just remember whoever framed the shot did it in such a way that like my knees were like rubbing <laughs> up against like the cinematic. Like guy like that belongs on Mount Rushmore of Hollywood history. And I was like, what is this? Am I being punked? Is this a game? I had to like pretend like I belonged with <laughs> John freaking Travolta. And ironically, like one of the few celebrities, I think I only interviewed maybe that once. That's <laughs> bizarre. So yeah, that, that was a Never been heard from since. <laughs> <laughs> Disappeared in a Flying <laughs> jets caught caught just keeping yeah. to himself. <laughs> exactly. Maybe he's insisted on never speaking with me again. That jumps out. We did this thing called Sneak Peek Week, uh, yes. which was this week of events leading into movie awards for a number of years. And it was pretty early in my tenure. It was probably about 2008, I would want to say, when we did a week of it was screenings of movies. And then it was Q&As with talent afterwards that we would film yeah. and turned into promos. And- Again, the secret committee made the choice to let Josh do it. God bless you, but I did it. And I remember doing like Pineapple Express. Yes. You don't mess with the Zohan and like yes. Foot Fist Lay. Yes. It was pretty heady stuff for a, a guy that had never produced a ton and produced Charlie Rose and big names and whatever, but hadn't done a, a lot on camera. And suddenly to be like in front of audiences with A-list yeah. talent. Gosh. It was really, really cool and
0: overwhelming and yeah. exciting. Keep Going back to kind of the stuff that just got my blood flowing. I, I yeah. definitely remember that we were both in deep kind of simultaneously in different ways. I at a certain point just realized that I was more likely to be a executive than a rock star, you know, at some point I was like, okay, well, I think this is going to work out mm-hmm. better if I focus my energy on this. But as a result, I would often be in a position where like you, I felt like, oh my gosh, I don't know that I can do this. Like a Philippe Dumas pitch in the boardroom or some right. random, scary executive thing. I share that mostly because I'm discovering now that I have left the corporate world and left New York City, now that it's not my 24-7, I realize just how hard so much of that was and how much stress I embodied. You must have felt the same way where you were just like gritting your teeth and staying up at night being like, what is happening? I mean, it's one of the constant topics I, on my podcast with anybody's
1: imposter syndrome, and it's yeah. something that I still suffer from. Like, I've been doing this a while now, yeah. and the, the good way of looking at it, which I think is absolutely valid and true, is like, uh, still having the nerves, which I do, means I still care. Would I like to be a little less stressed out uh, at times? Yeah, I would. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I, I really do. I still get stressed. I still think I'm going to run out of things to ask somebody yeah. on my podcast. I can't get it into my brain that I know how to do this. I, yes. I know intellectually I do, right. but that stuff is deep and it's hard to let go yeah. of. I think I have reconciled that it's always going to be there and I have to use it for good <laughs> as much as maybe it would give me less gray hairs. It, it makes me better at what I do to, to constantly be nervous. It's what makes me feel awesome too. be on the knife's edge of failing right. and then getting through it and maybe right. even succeeding. That's uh, there's no greater feeling not to psychoanalyze you but you were talking about all these aspects of your job early on that scared you and doing the presentation like i mean you, oh, you didn't you have to do that. that like i mean you've chased the the scary parts you haven't embraced the easy path
0: i appreciate you saying that it tends to come back to that intersection of the things that scare me and my ability to move Towards and through that stuff is all I'm saying. Which I think in your youth you might do it because you're just too dumb to know otherwise. But mostly, I would say most of culture avoids it. I mean, I would argue you're an anomaly. You kind of charge towards it.
1: Yeah, and look, I think what we're talking about is is something I wrestle with as I try to be iterative and adapt and change my career in small yeah. and big ways. Is like it's hard to change. It's hard yeah. to like accept change and. I don't know what my career is going to look like in five or 10 years. It's not that I don't think about it, but I can't fathom it. I don't yeah. know what it is. I can't be at MTV forever. I'm already yeah. overstayed my welcome by a number of years. Um, but it, you it, it, Well, I, I guess not. But it feels that way at some times. I've kind of reconciled that I'm riding the wave and I do iterate even when I'm not consciously trying to iterate. Right. I do create new series and new shows. I have like five
0: different series I'm doing. I was like, what what aren't you doing? You're like a game show host, like (laughs) bizarre comedy sketches and the straight stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Dude.
1: Yeah. It's good. And I like to, I'm better when I'm busy. I am not good with idle time Would it be better for me stress-wise, whatever, to have a little less to do? Maybe I'll get there. Maybe we'll both get there. But right now I'm happiest when I'm doing 10% too
0: much. My memory with you was always being enthused about pursuing any creative idea. Like, yeah, podcast. So, How did you come to start it? Because you were way ahead of the curve and you've really grown it. Well, actually, after hours isn't even really the same, right? Like after hours is the goofy skits where dudes are like licking you.
1: Right. So so the (laughs) best. Here's what I will say, because I do want want to give you props and a general props to any boss that does this. One of the greatest, arguably the greatest gift I've had is freedom and trust from my bosses and not to blow smoke up your ass, but that's what I got from you and other bosses like Dave, et cetera. You saw I had some talent, et cetera, whatever, and that I was industrious. And then you gave me enough freedom to say like, sure, try it. Have John C. Riley sit in your lap for half an hour and see if that works. Like... (laughs) And it did. Which is the first After Hours sketch I did in 2008. 2008 is when I launched After Hours, which was not After Hours at the time. It was just, let's see if I can convince celebrities to do silly crap with me. First one I ever did was John C. Riley promoting a film called Cyrus, um, which is a great movie that people have forgotten about from the Duplass brothers. And the concept, as stupid or silly as it was, was called Up Close. And it was just like a sight gag where you're close on me. Welcome to Up Close with John C. Riley. I'm Josh Horowitz say hello to my guest John C. Riley, you go wide and you see that we're like on top of each other. And the whole interview is very played straight. We're in contorting and bizarre situations. Thus after Hours was born. Yeah, After Hours kind of became like more of an anthology thing, like just like a bucket for like silly shenanigans. And some were scripted and some were not. Um, um, exactly. And I kind of did that in one form or another for many years and kind of still do. Now it's not called After Hours, but I do stuff for Comedy Central and they indulge my insanity too by, I do some scripted sketches for them and I also do a unscripted talk show for them. So in terms of just like how it was born, I get along with the publicist of John C. Riley. I bet he'd go for a crazy yeah. idea. Should I yeah. do something crazy? And it was probably me and my friend Joel, Joel Hanek, yeah. who came up with that crazy idea. And it kind of worked, worked well enough at least to keep doing it. And as for the podcast, I wasn't Mark Marin, but I wasn't, you know, yeah. 2018. Yeah. Uh, it started in 2014. Was just missing not doing the long form conversations. It was less about yeah, podcasts and we right, needed to depth. kind of feed my soul with some depth. Right, exactly. I was doing the sketches, I was doing junkets, which are like six or eight minutes long, and that's a certain skill set, but it's a different skill set. And look, my first job out of school was Charlie Rose was 30 minute hour long yeah, conversations. Yeah. And that that really is is what what gets me excited look, we can talk about this now because like you're not there, at whatever. But like, I kind of just did it. I don't even know if I was allowed to really. And I remember you being like, well, this is kind of weird, but okay, Godspeed. And yeah, I mean, it's actually served me very well because it it is the part of my universe that I own. It's like me, I own Happy, Say, Confused as a brand and MTV In my recent contracts is very important to me to carve that out for myself. And my first guest was uh, Kate Mara. And it's become uh, its own thing. Like, it, it, you know, do we get like Mark Maron numbers? Certainly not. But I guess the right people are listening. And you not more listening. Maron
0: guests, buddy. I mean, holy moly!
1: I'm very proud of the gu- yeah. I, mean, yeah I, I would put my guest list up, frankly, up against anybody. I'm very proud of when you have like Chris Nolan on a few times and Quentin Tarantino on a few times. Aaron Sorkin, dude. Like, I listen to those with a notebook out.
0: Man, I'm not joking.
1: Yeah. I love it all, but sometimes it's the filmmakers that get me the most excited. It's kind of like the stuff I can really nerd out on and get excited by, probably like you. So it, it, it's a great gift. Again, no one's telling me to do it. I've never really sold ads on it. It's not like a big money maker, but it's mine. And I get to talk to the most talented filmmakers and actors alive for extended conversations. And I have enough of an audience that it can pay for itself and maybe make me a little money. And who knows in the long run what it turns into, but... Now I'm 400 plus episodes in. I'm starting to do live episodes in New York, which I'm really psyched about. It's, uh, it's my baby. I
0: love it. How did you name? I mean, I feel like there's an awkwardness at the center of all of your work. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, this kind of like, you know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) before the podcast, it was a photo series and it has lived on as a photo series. Just recall being at junkets and press opportunities and just seeing a ton of people kind of do kind of that awkward, like, hey, can I take a photo with you, John Travolta, George Clooney? And it's that awkward thing. And we've all done it. It's a way to capture something. But it felt a little awkward, to use your word. And I kind of decided, let me embrace the awkward. Let me try and do something a little weirder. And the first interviews I did this for, where I asked a celebrity to do three poses with me, a happy a sad and a confused was for, of all movies, Zero Dark 30. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh riot, yeah. Catherine Bigelow. <laughs>
0: There's <is> no happy. <laughs> No. A, a
1: fair a amount of sad, sad and a lot of confusion. Yeah. 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 Jessica Chastain was my first victim and she's become a very frequent yeah, guest of yeah, happy, yeah. Say confused. I haven't done it a lot, obviously in COVID era, I haven't done a lot of in-person things. So I haven't done a lot of the photos, but I have an amazing archive of like the greatest talent on the world, making silly faces with me. I remember when Christian Bale of all people, that's the one I would show to other people when yeah. they were like, Oh, should I do this? And Christian Bale, when I asked to do it and I was, Nervous as hell. Not only did it, but like jumped in the air for happy. I have this amazing photo of him just like four feet up in the air, uh, giddy yeah. as a schoolboy. It's kind of took its own life on Instagram and people seem to love it. And when I was starting the podcast, I had no better name. I was like, okay, I kind of have a, like a mini brand, a mini audience already. Let me just call it happy, sad, confused.
0: I am going to give you one here, Josh. Coffee table book.
1: You're welcome. You think I haven't thought about it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting. (laughs) You know? I just need to figure out like what the, I don't know. I think it needs a little more text on the bone or something. Maybe it's just photos. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I will do something with it at some point because it's an amazing collection of photos at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I've seen Denzel for God's sakes, right? I know. I know. Yeah. It's so many Oscar winners. I've, I've alphabetized how many times people have done it. The dates. I have it ready when it's time to deliver it. So it'll exist at some point.
0: I did want to talk about the Oscar red carpet a little bit. One, just because I've been there with you, which I can yeah. now admit to you. Yes, of course, I went just to be on the Oscar red carpet once before I left MTV. <laughs> uh, you're now a sane be revealed. human being, of right. course. Why I just you? remember being there like, oh my God, everybody. It's like, I remember going to Sundance just to interview Bono and being yeah. like, well... <laughs> Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like everyone your, gets a freebie every once in a while.
1: You weren't costing the organization anything and you got
0: a very important moment yes, in we your life. You got the <laughs> imperative sound bites on the 3D movie that nobody watched but me. <laughs> Most people don't know what happens except for when they see the soundbite. Right. right. They see you with Leo saying something to you that he said to no one and that's gold and we put that on air. But my experience is vastly different. And I wonder if you could just give the sort of crash course TLDR of what that carpet's like for you.
1: Can I give you a silly Leo anecdote? Just to play it's carpets, just yes, because it's name dropping, but this is my life. Drop them You know, but it's funny. I think you'll appreciate it. I was doing a and a recently for Don't Look yeah. Up. Yeah. It was Leo Meryl Streep, and Jonah Hill on this one. I did one with Jennifer Lawrence also. Yeah. It was a crazy day. I'm in like backstage about to go out on the stage with Leo and Jonah and Meryl Streep. (laughs) And uh, while I've interviewed Leo actually a number of times and Jonah, I've known for many years, Meryl is pretty scared to be around. She's amazing, but it was like freaking Meryl Streep. Um, And in the calm before the storm, that kind of like quiet moment before they introduce us, Leo looks at me and he goes, I just saw an interview you did um, where you you were asking James McAvoy who would win in a fight, the Avengers or X-Men. Was that you? So like, I don't know what was going through my brain, but I, I think what was going through my brain was like, don't admit to it in front of Meryl Streep. Right. So I was like, no, that wasn't me. I would never ask somebody. Like, that's somebody else, dude. Leo, that's not me. And he was like, I'm pretty sure it was you, man. I'm like, nope. Definitely not me. Definitely not me. And then Joan starts to make fun of me. And Meryl, I couldn't even make eye contact. I don't know what she made of the situation. Cut to a day later, I tweeted about it. Like, Leo claimed I did this. Obviously, I didn't. Somebody within like five minutes sent me the video of me five years ago asking James McAvoy that question. The fascinating kind of side tidbit is I guess that video had been surfacing on TikTok in recent Uh. days five years later. So my takeaway from this and for the audience, Leonardo DiCaprio Heavily on the TikTok, yeah, Leo is <laughs> lurking on TikTok. He's out there.
0: I mean, of course you would ask that.
1: You have to. Of course, I know. Everyone, everyone I've said that to is like. But of oh, all that's, the things for literally him, literally what
0: you do. I definitely see you pursue a line of questioning that was really meaningful to a very small subset of humans. <laughs> so, like the converse is also true yes
1: yes I I contain multitudes Um, So so thank you all carpets are insane and kind of miserable in many ways the Oscars as the the glory of being the Oscars so it kind of makes the misery part of it worth dealing with you have no space you are like packed in like sardines the Oscars are so funny because you are separated literally by a hedge it it, as if to remind you of your place in the universe there is a hedge that separates you from the glamorous stars so you cannot literally get to them you have no idea who's coming when. As you know, like on, on things like the MTV carpets, carpets that we kind of own the space for, we would have people like talent wranglers, right? That would kind of like go be able to roam the carpet and, and bring us talent over. So we kind of have some semblance of control. Even that was a little chaotic. But at the Oscars, and especially the years I was doing it early on when we were doing live streams, that was one of the craziest gigs I ever did, because there were some years where I was basically on for two hours straight Mm. Um, with with no mm. real breaks, no, no second correspondent, no other person to toss to. And it was this horrible voice you're hearing right now just rambling about Oscar <laughs> nominations like Slumdog Millionaire, of course, is nominated for 12. <laughs> and then like oh, and I think I see Danny Boyle coming down. and I think there's there's it was just like it was insanity. And but was then not, you'd have to go, Danny. Danny!
0: Oh uh, yeah. Danny. Yeah, that,
1: that, <laughs> there was one year I was I was not live at least, but I was basically trying to get my own talent. And there was one year where I was on the globes carpet and I was interviewing one of my idols Michael Keaton at that point I don't think I'd ever really done a real thing with Michael Keaton it was probably the Birdman year and like I was so excited but I saw like out of the periphery of my vision Chris Pratt walking by who I know actually a bit and was a big deal to get more important frankly for MTV to get time for Chris Pratt and I just in the middle of like a answer from Michael Keaton as he's talking eloquently (laughs) about his comeback film Birdman I just go Chris! (laughs) Chris! (laughs) 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 <laughs> and Michael Keaton just looks at me like <laughs> Michael Keaton's just like who's Chris? What's going on? And I'm like I'm sorry Michael oh, Keaton I'm
0: sorry Batman I love
1: you I skipped a school for you when I was 13 years yeah. old but, but I need to talk Chris Pratt about a Jurassic movie <laughs> Yeah, there have been a lot of moments like that where I'm like screaming like a crazy person for somebody to like see me. It looks glamorous when you see the finished product often. But there is even someone like me who gets the rarefied, like the nice spot on the carpet and people seem to know me. I'm still like screaming like a banshee for yeah. the star of Jurassic World to give me 45 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my it God. really it's, puts you in your place. It's got to be so hard.
0: I guess, again, as I approached this chat with you, man, I I mostly felt like not not regret, but just a little bit of like, gosh, I hope I was an okay colleague. <laughs> you know you what I mean? Because we uh, were uh, kids and we were wound and like it was so serious, you know, for me. It no, felt like no. so serious. Like I said
1: before, you gave me the runway, you gave me the encouragement, and that's the greatest honestly, it's the greatest gift you can get as a, a young fledgling artist creator,
0: room to fail, room to succeed. Movie theaters, back into movie theaters and the movies. What's happening? in there why are they arguably our most potent means of communicating big important subjects to one another
1: what makes film so special is just the marriage of all the arts mm. it's it's music it's cinematography it's acting it's a wholly unique form that's relatively recent <laughs> that okay. is being displayed in the highest possible quality in a format that can envelop you like nothing can and you're there with other people. It's got that theatrical aspect. Yes, you're there with other people and you're sharing that communal experience. It gets into the deepest parts of our brains and hearts, like no other form can, at least for me. And I think it does go back to like childhood when we didn't know the sausage was made and like those films did legitimately transport us. You would forget where you were. Maybe I don't have that in me anymore to legitimately like, I'm in this world now, but I think it still touches something that we. We felt when we were five or six and first going to the movies, that was the place where we could go to Tatooine and go hang out with you know, the Time Bandits. It felt real. It feels real. I think of films like Gravity, where it's like, I am in it. I can't escape it. Mad Max Fury Road. Those films were like... I am inside of something that I can't escape. I don't want to escape. And I'm just on a ride. I'm just so enveloped. And sometimes it doesn't have to be like bombastic. It can be call me by your name or the emotions are so palpable and they just suck you in and you are you you can't even escape it if you wanted to. Like you're out of your own body. That's kind of what I'm chasing in a cinematic experience. It doesn't happen a lot, but if it happens five or 10 times a year, it's that's pretty extraordinary.
0: It's almost the closest legal thing you can do to really... Escape the bounds of this sort of general condition of suffering that is life, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, suffering and joy.
1: Life is hard. <laughs> life is super hard, and it's. It, I think of like what was like the song and cheers. Like you know, it's like why we go to the bar, why we mm. why we drink. Why it, it, we're, it's a it's an escape. It's that I don't think it's anything honestly more complex than that. Which is we want something simple, something. That fits, that makes sense, that has a happy ending. Um, And the only happy endings, the only, I mean, not to make this a sad thing, but the only real happy endings are in literature and film and theater and music and the arts. Life is is much more complicated. So I think it's the certainty of a story that is comforting.
0: You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an Essential Industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. and Visit BenjaminWagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative, coaching, and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.